0: The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Page
1: 635, chapter 43 Beginning with chapter 41 the Al-Tarebi explained that the fear of Hashem or the awe of Hashem, this is an essential ingredient for a Jew. Not only in order for us to be careful and not violating any transgression, so if you have a sense of fear, a sense of awe, this will protect you from transgressing, from violating, from acting acting immorally because if you only have a love for Hashem if Hashem is your best friend we know how it is with friends You know, yes, you love your friend and you'll do things for your friend but if you don't listen to them what's the big deal? they're only my friend if I don't listen we're still friends it's not my father it's not my, my king it's not my boss it's a friend so love motivates a person to fulfill the positive mitzvah. But it won't stop you from violating a negative prohibition. But when you have a sense of awe, there's a distance. God is greater than me and therefore there's a sense of awe. God then, you will refrain from violating his wish. His wish is my command. If God says explicitly, please don't do this, don't do this. Without a please, you don't do it. You're afraid to violate God's prohibition. But in chapter 41, he went on to explain that this is an essential ingredient, not only to fulfill the 365 don'ts or prohibitions, but it's actually an essential ingredient in order to fulfill the 248 positive mitzvot as well. Because if your approach to God is only based on love, then love is ultimately selfish. It's not about God, it's about me. It's only when it's rooted and based on a sense of God, a sense of God's presence, that you're really, truly connected to God. I'm doing the mitzvah because God is commanding me to do the mitzvah, and I am His loyal and faithful servant, and it's my honor, and it's my uh, pleasure to be able to serve God. So this is an essential ingredient for a Jew, in our Jewishness, in our connection, our relationship with God, to serve God, to be His faithful and loyal servant. So there has to be an element of fear of awe. and with this he explained. It says in the verse, chapter forty-two, he explained. It says Moses tells the Jewish people, "Listen, what is God asking of you? All God is asking of you is that you should be f- fear, you should be in awe of God, to follow His paths, and to love Him, and to serve Him with all your heart and all your soul." the Talmud asks, that's all God is asking of us. Is this a trivial thing? To be afraid of, to be in fear, to be in awe of God? Who, who experiences this? this? is something that's very difficult to achieve. And the Talmud says, well, in relation to Moses, it's a trivial thing. Doesn't seem to answer the question. Moses, Moses is not speaking to Moses. He's speaking to every single Jew, to us, today. How can you say that all God is asking of us is to fear God? He explained, because there's a Moses within each and every one of us, we all have a spark of Moses, and that's the ability to experience, to to sense godliness. And therefore, because of the spark of Moses within each and every one of us, it is within our reach. Every single Jew has the ability to have a sense of God's presence, a sense of God's reality. Enough to keep us from, from sinning or enough from, to, to motivate us to do the mitzvah, to send to God's presence. And he quoted from Ethics of Our Fathers in the beginning of chapter 2 in Ethics of Our Fathers, he says that a Jew should know that God is above us and there's an eye that sees and an ear that hears. That God sees us. And he sees our actions. And he's watching us. And he's listening to us. And he feels our thoughts. And he senses every move of ours. And he's waiting to see, are we going to serve him? So when you feel God's presence, when you sense that God is watching you, when you're able to see God and able to sense God's presence, and God is watching you, you feel God's presence, then you'll behave differently person who feels and senses God's presence 24-7, then you'll behave in a certain way. You'll think in a certain way. You'll speak in a certain way. You'll carry yourself in a certain way. Just like when a stranger is in the room, when you're being watched. How do you behave when you're being watched? How do you behave when you're in private and you think that nobody's looking and nobody's watching? How do you behave? Almost like two different people. Someone is watching, we're in public. In public, you're in best behavior. Even if it's a stranger, even if you don't know him. And even if it's not anyone important, but someone is watching. You're in public, you behave a certain way, you're in public. There's a presence. So minimally, Hashem should be, have the same presence as a stranger has. When a stranger is in the room, I behave a certain way. Why is God's presence any less than a stranger? When God is present, I behave a certain way. God knows what we're thinking, so I think a certain way, I speak a certain way, or in a more refined way, and I act a certain way. And this is the beginning of the code of Jewish law. Hashem <laughs> The Jew always has to remember that God is right in front of him. And the moment you wake up in the morning, you realize that God is standing over my bed, and therefore, after lying for a moment and saying the Modani, thanking God, you jump out of bed, and you, you serve him. So this is what the Mishnah means, to know that there's an eye that sees and an ear that hears. God is always present. God is always with us 24-7. And that's the foundation. Based on that, you can serve God and you can connect with God. And you're like a soldier. A soldier is always on duty. You know you're always on duty 24-7. You're asleep, you're awake, you're eating, whatever you're doing, you're always on duty. And this connects us with God. This is the minimal level, minimal requirement in order for us to connect with God, to sense God's presence. But this is on a very low level because, yes, you're afraid, there's a fear, there's a sense of presence, but... but the focus is more that there's an eye that sees and there's an ear that hears. God sees me and He hears me and He notices me and therefore I'm afraid to violate or to act in a way that's wrong. Or a sin of commission or even a sin of omission. If I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do, that's also a sin. If God is present, how can I not do rec- fulfill my requirement, fulfill my obligations? So that's what motivates me. If I am able to see God, if I know that God sees me, God is watching me. And then as we learned last week in the, in the previous chapter, that a person is able to develop a sense that I can see God. Because I look at this world and this world is like the body and God is like the soul. So when I see, just like when I see the king, I, see, I don't see his soul. I can't see his soul, but I don't need to see his soul. I see his body, I see his soul. So when I look at the world as God's body, I'm able to see God. So I I see God and and I know that God sees me. And therefore, I sense God's presence. I see God's presence. And it's palpable. And my heart uh, jumps a little, I see. God is right in front of me. God is standing, hovering right over me. Standing right in front of me. So when you feel God's presence, you see God's presence, you evoke a sense of awe, a sense of fear, a sense of awe. And that, that motivates me to do the right thing to fulfill my obligations, and, God forbid, not to violate or trespass or transgress a Prohibition. But that's very limited, because what I'm thinking about is, God is watching me. God is a presence. Just like there's a stranger in the room. A stranger doesn't have to be great. It doesn't have to be anyone special. There's just another presence besides me, and that's enough to keep me in line. So if I sense God's presence, minimally equivalent, just like equally like I sense a stranger in the room, it keeps me in line. I'll do the right thing. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. I'm in public. I'm not going to do anything that's wrong. I have, my, I have my reputation at stake. Someone is watching. There's an eye that sees. There's an ear that hears. Like a famous, famous children's story where someone, uh, someone was traveling by horse and buggy and the, the wagon driver stops and he tells the passenger, he says, please be a lookout, act as a lookout. Because he saw these beautiful apples in someone's orchard, private orchard, that did not belong to him. He says, I'm going to sneak into the orchard, I'm going to take apples. If you see someone coming down the road, call me. So As he climbs up, he's about to take his first apple. He yells out, watch out, someone is watching. He jumps down, he runs to the, he's so ashamed, embarrassed, he's going to get caught. He looks around, there's nobody there. He says, what are you talking about? There's nobody here. He smiles. He says, God is watching. <laughs> the stranger is watching. You would run. You would hide. You're so ashamed. God is nobody. God is watching. means nothing to you. So this is the basic minimal level of fear of God, which a Jew has to have all the time. A certain yoke that you accept upon yourself, even if you can't sense God's presence. But you could accept upon yourself a yoke of heaven, like a soldier always has a yoke. A soldier is always on duty. Whether he's eating or drinking or sleeping or showering, whatever he's doing 24-7, you're always on duty. You take upon yourself the yoke of heaven. I am God's loyal soldier. I'm his loyal, faithful servant. I have a duty. I have a a responsibility and obligation, like a yoke on my shoulder, like an animal would rather run wild, but you have a yoke and you keep the animal in line. Don't be an animal. You have something, you have to act responsibly. I know if you left to your own natures, you would act like an animal and be an animal act animalistic, but you have a yoke on you. And there's someone, someone guiding you and making sure that you're going to be productive, you're going to act productive. So too, we ha- take upon ourselves the yoke of heaven and we have a sense of responsibility, a sense of discipline that I'm not just free for all. There's a yoke, there's a responsibility. I'm connected with God. I serve God. I'm, I'm, I have to answer to God. And that's enough to keep me connected and to do the right thing 24-7. A higher level is That's the minimal level, accepting upon yourself the yoke of heaven, even if you don't feel anything. Just in your mind, you say, I accept upon myself the yoke of heaven, and I'm going to act accordingly. A deeper level is when you're able to see God, and God is able to see you, and therefore you sense God's presence. So at least the equivalent of sensing a stranger's presence. When there's a stranger in the room, you act accordingly, so when you sense God's presence, you also act accordingly. That's what the ethics, the mission, and ethics of our fathers, the rabbis and ethics of our fathers are referring to, that a Jew should always realize there's an eye that sees and there's an ear that hears. God is watching. God is here, present, right in front of you. I'm never alone. But if you look at the verse that he quoted in the last chapter, Moses tells the Jewish people, what is God asking of you? All God is asking of you is to fear God, to go in his path, To go in his path, and to love him, and to serve God. So he seems to be saying something more. More than just sensing that there's an eye that sees and an ear that hears. But to fear God, to be in awe of God, to motivate me to go in his path. In a godly path, in a divine path. So here, obviously, he's talking about a higher level of, of awe, of sense of fear, of sense of awe. Not only that God is watching, and therefore I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed, I'm, I'm afraid. I sense God's presence. That's fine. But that's a very low level. There's a higher level where you sense God himself. You're following in His path. A sense of awe in which you're able to follow His path. What is God asking of you? All God is asking you should be in fear of Him. You should be able to follow His path. And this is the root also of love. To love Him with all your heart, and to serve Him with all your heart and all your soul. So the verse seems to be signifying we're dealing here with something more than just sensing an eye that sees and an ear that hears. That, that's a very low level. That's just or accepting upon yourself the yoke of heaven. There, there's really no sense of godliness. Yes, there's no ego involved, because we're not talking about fear of punishment. Fear of punishment is all about ego. Yes, I believe that there are consequences to my behaviors, and if I do the wrong thing, there are consequences. But I'm thinking about myself. I'm not thinking about God. I don't want lightning to strike. I don't want God to punish me. That's purely egotistical. It's purely ego motivated. There is no connection to holiness. There is no connection to God. So that's not even. That's not even. Doesn't even meet the minimum requirement. Of fear of a sense of awe of God. The minimum requirement is that I accept upon myself the yoke of heaven. That's the minimal level. A higher level is when I can sense the eye that sees and the ear that hears. That God is watching. I sense his presence. If you can live with, God, with a sense of God's presence all the time, that God is with me and he's looking at me and I see him and he sees me and he senses me and he notices and feels and senses everything that I think and everything that I feel and everything that I'm saying and doing, that's a higher level. But again, it's also a very minimal level. Because it's more a sense of fear that God's presence, just like I'm afraid of a stranger that's in the room. I feel there's a presence here. So therefore, it checks my behavior. I act in a certain way because I'm in public. So that's a very low level. Because there's really no sense of godliness. It's just a sense of God's presence. But then, there is a higher level of fear. We actually sense God's presence. And therefore, you're motivated to follow in his path. And it leads you to love him. And it leads you to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. Which is what the the, the verse states in Deuteronomy. So this is the level of fear that he's going to discuss in this chapter. Chapter 44. In the previous chapters, we learned the lower levels of fear. Here he's going to discuss a higher level of fear. A level that comes from an understanding. An understanding of God. A sensing of God's greatness. Something about God himself. God's greatness. Not only that God is here and he's watching. God's, God is present. But also a sense of the greatness of God, which evokes a sense of awe within the person. Which leads us to follow in God's path, and the divine path, and leads us to love Hashem, and to serve Him with all our heart and all our soul. And it's with this explanation that He's going to explain here, He's going to explain... The different levels of fear. And based on this explanation of these different levels of fear, we will clarify an mission and the ethics of our fathers which seem to be contradictory. It says in ethics of our fathers, if there is no fear, there is no wisdom. If there is no wisdom, there is no fear. You can't have fear, you can't have wisdom of God without fear of God. And you can't have fear of God without wisdom of God. So that's a contradiction. Seems like a contradiction. Where do you start? You're just saying you can't start with fear, you need wisdom first. You can't start with wisdom first, you need fear first. Where do you start? And there he's going to explain that the mission is referring to two different levels of fear. There's a lower level of fear and there is a higher level of fear. And the lower level of fear, that's the basic requirement. You can't begin without the lower level of fear, which leads you to wisdom, which is Torah and mitzvot. And it's the Torah and the mitzvot that lead you to the higher level of fear, the highest level of fear, which is the highest level. So you have two different levels of fear. And then he's going to explain that even within the lower level of fear, you also have different levels, a lower, lower level and a higher level even within the lower level of fear of different levels and that's what, he's, that's what he's going to explain between chapter 41 and chapter 42 chapter 43 it comes out that even within the lower level of fear you have like many different levels as we just discussed we began to discuss the level of accepting upon yourself the yoke of heaven, which really, there's no sense of God's presence at all, it's just an accepting upon yourself the yoke of heaven, which is, by doing that you fulfill your requirement of serving God. Then you have, we do sense God's presence, but you sense there's the eye that sees and the ear that hears, you sense God's presence and that He's watching you, and that keeps you in check. That's a higher level, but that's still a very low level. That's called Yirei Chet, I'm more afraid of the sin. Then there is that you're afraid of God, and within that fear of God itself, there's a lower level and there's a higher level. And then these are all fit within the category of the lower level of fear, which is the introduction to wisdom. Because all of these levels lead a Jew to serve God, to do the Torah and do the mitzvah whether it's accepting upon yourself the yoke of heaven, whether it's sensing God's presence, God is always before me, in front of me, watching me, which, which motivates me to fulfill the Torah and mitzvot, or it's a higher level of fear where you sense God's presence, the greatness of God, and the higher level where you sense the, the emphasis is, is on God, and then the ultimate level, and that leads to you to study Torah and do mitzvot. And then when you do study Torah and do mitzvah, that leads to the fifth level, which is the highest level of fear, and that's what he's going to discuss now.
2: The Alti Rebbe explained in the previous chapter that every Jew has the ability to attain Yerotata, the lower level of fear of Hashem. This enables him to perform all the positive commandments and refrain from transgressing all the negative commandments. In the present chapter, the author, ever goes on to explain the two levels of fear of Hashem, Yiratata and Yirilah, the lower and higher levels of fear, respectively. This distinction clarifies a seeming contradiction. The Mishnah first states, If there is no wisdom, there is no fear of Hashem. Wisdom must perceive fear. But the Mishnah then goes on to say, If there is no fear of Hashem, there is no wisdom. Fear must precede wisdom. The explanation is as follows. The Mishnah refers to the two above-mentioned levels of fear. The first statement, If there is no fear, there is no wisdom. He refers to the lower level of fear, Yiratata. Without this level of fear, it is impossible to attain wisdom. An example the performance of Torah and Mitzvah. This is deemed wisdom, since the ultimate purpose of wisdom is repentance and good deeds. The second statement, there is no wisdom, there is no fear, refers to the higher level of fear. Yura ila this level of fear must be preceded by wisdom. Example the performance of Torah and Mitzvah. Only thus is one able to attain the higher level of fear. The Al Rebbe also explains in this chapter that just as there are two general levels of fear of Hashem, there are also two general levels of love of Hashem. Concerning this level of tata, of which it was said in the previous chapter, that is, in the province of every Jew, which is necessary for the fulfillment of his commandments in both areas of turn away from evil and do good, example in the performance of the negative and positive commands. It was said by our sages, if there is no fear, there is no wisdom. If fear of Hashem is lacking, then one cannot properly fulfill the Torah and Mister. It is this lower level of fear, compromise of mode of smallness and, and mode of greatness, the quality of smallness describes the fear which is experienced as a result of a Jew's innate fear of Hashem, and which is merely revealed through meditating upon matters that lead to the fear of Hashem. Since it does not result from contemplating Hashem's greatness, it is deemed small. The quality of greatness characterizes the fear of Hashem, that it results from contemplating Hashem's greatness as it can be discerned from creation. This means, example, fear has the quality of greatness when this category of the low level of fear is the result of contemplation on the greatness of Hashem as it is perceived through His providing life to creation, that He fills all worlds. Hashem provides all worlds with vitality by vesting Himself in them. This life force is attuned to the innate spirituality of the particular world or created being in which the higher the world or created being the loftier its life
1: force so the smaller level of, of fear <coughs> is every Jew is born has an innate fear of God but it's dormant so you have to reveal it when you meditate it when you meditate and you're thinking about God it evokes this natural sense of fear that we have but that's called a small level. It's innate, it's natural, but it doesn't come from contemplation. It's not a fear that comes with, with a great level of awareness. It's just like an instinct, an instinct that every Jew is born with, but it's dormant. And by thinking about, about the, the God, meditating, it evokes, this instinct is evoked, surfaces, and is revealed. But then there's a level of fear that's based on awareness. When you're aware of the greatness of God, when you contemplate and meditate an idea that God creates and sustains and animates all of the world. God is the soul of all the world. God creates every individual creature and every energy, the energy that perfectly matches the, the individual creature. And based on the created entity, that is the level of matching, the level of energy that matches that that created being. So when you think about the vastness of the world and how great the world is, how numerous the world is, how many numerous species there are in this world, and the world is so rich and diversified, and there's there's almost almost like an infinite variety. And every, everything in this world is so much variety, in, whether it's taste, or whether it's music, or whether it's a species, or whether there's almost like an infinite variations, colors, and and that's just this world. And then when you contemplate, what about the higher worlds, and the higher levels of consciousness? And, you know, we're just one, one tiny aspect of the universe. There's so many different dimensions, and so many, there are infinite angels, and and there's seven as he's going to quote here from the Talmud There's seven heavens and and the, the infinite um, each heaven the heaven is like 500 levels beyond our world and then the distance between one heaven and the next heaven there're seven heavens so as, as great as the distance between our world and the first heaven which is 500 years which what it means is a 500 levels is totally beyond our comprehension, 500 levels beyond our comprehension, so much beyond our understanding. And then the, the, between this next heaven and the, and the next heaven is another 500 levels degree of separation, 500 degrees of separation. You know, within ourselves, there only five degrees of separation, from the lowest to the highest, five degrees of separation <laughs> from our actions, to our speech, to our thought, to our emotions, to our intellect, which is the greatest. The most spiritual, the most sublime within us is our intellect, the electrical capacity to imagine, to think, and then the world of action. So there's five degrees of separation. Imagine 500 degrees of separation between us and the first level of heaven, of spirituality. It's so much beyond us. As it says, an angel, there are angels that are like the equivalent of a third of the world. That their one mind is the equivalent if you put all the minds of the world together. A third of the world is an angel. That's half of the world is an angel that's equivalent of all the world's. So it's so much beyond our understanding. you know the laws of the way they understand the laws of the universe and the laws of physics and that dimension, it's like our whole understanding of the universe and physics is like child play in comparison to the dimension of the angels and their understanding and their depth. And that's the first level. And then you go this five degrees 500 degrees of separation between the first heaven and the second, heaven and the second and the, second and the third and then above all the heavens are the angels the lowest level of the angels and and they are total they supersede and they surpass the level of the heavens so the world is so vast it's so so infinitely complex and so variegated and so that and god animates and creates and sustains this complex world and all its variations and all its infinite depth once you start realizing how God animates and creates the world and is within the world and His energy creates and sustains the world it evokes a sense of uh, it evokes a sense of awe how could you you see God's greatness you sense you sense God's greatness the more you appreciate the universe the more you're the, the higher the level of your level of understanding of the vastness of the universe you know, those astronomers who study the, the stars and you see the vastness, infinite vastness of the universe, and the numbers are mind-boggling. You know, up until a thousand years ago, you were only able to see the stars you are able to see with your naked eye, which is an, also fills all the skies. But what we're able to see today and we're able to know today, the, the, the <laughs> infinite amount of... Galaxies and stars, and it's just so dazzling and so infinitely vast and great. So, the more you are aware of how infinitely complex and how infinitely great the universe is, how diverse the universe, the more you're in awe of God, who's creating this universe, who's sustaining this universe. And every individual entity has its own unique flavor and its own unique energy. God creates every Every individual entity, its own individuality. So, for the, you, the more you appreciate the diversity of the universe and the infinite complexity of the universe, the more you're in awe of God. The more you appreciate God, God is able to create this, this infinitely complex. You know, t- until a few hundred years ago, the universe was pretty simple. <laughs> now the universe has become so. The more you study, the more you learn. The more we know, the more we're aware of. It's just so infinitely complex. And all of this God created, and is created, and is sustained. And all its infinite variety down to every detail. And so you're in awe of God. How can you not be in awe of God? You're in a sense of awe of God's greatness. So the more you understand the universe, the more you see the greatness of the universe, the more you appreciate the depth and the greatness of the universe, the more you're able to appreciate the greatness of God. And you have a sense of awe of God's presence. God's greatness, God's majesty, God's greatness. You know, it's like uh, if you if, if you meet someone who you know is running a small business and he has five people working on them. Okay, fine, you're impressed. Started his own business. Imagine you meet someone who's running who has uh, five hundred thousand people working for him. Like, you know, and he has companies all over the world, and he's single handedly running this huge enterprise. I mean, you would just be in awe if you meet such a person. There's a different level of of awe when you meet a person who's running a small mom-and-pop operation. It's also nice. He's running his own business. It's nice. But when you meet someone who's running a world-class, international, multinational, I mean, you're just in awe of this individual, this individual. It just shows the greatness of this individual that he was able to create such a company and was able to run such a company, is able to sustain it. Just a very simple analogy, but if you <laughs> multiply that infinite times, the more you understand the complexity of the universe and the infinite diversity of the universe, and you realize that God is creating all of us and running it, and sustaining it. you just in the law of God. Wow, look how great God is.
0: Uh, just uh, about uh, the Al Rebbe, I mean, here he's talking about galaxy, you're talking about galaxies and world and all of that, and there was no telescopes back then. I mean, how did he sense this, uh, you know, feeling of galaxies and this and that? I mean, it's not like, uh, you know, we use just our own reference point, but, uh, you know, he was revealing this stuff before the industrial revolution, there were
3: telescopes since the 1600s actually
1: yeah but not like the Hubble
3: no but there were telescopes since Galileo
1: and also in addition we have to remember that everything that we see with the naked eye in the physical world is really a symptom of what's going on in the spiritual world the fact that it seems so infinite is because there, there, there are infinite amount of angels the physical is just a symptom of the spiritual. So we don't know what's going on in the spiritual realms. We're not tuned in with the spiritual. So we have to see the physical, and from that we can extrapolate, and we can understand what's going on in the spiritual realms. But the Torah, that's the, that's the gift of the Torah. That's why the Torah is divine. The Torah takes us, gives us a tour from the inside out. It tells us what's happening on the inside When you see the inside, then you know automatically what's happening in the external. Just a beautiful story to illustrate that. The fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe was once washing his hands to eat a meal, and his younger brother reported to him very excitedly that scientists just discovered that there is a vein in the brain of a person, and when a person wants to remember something, right? You're trying to remember something, you lift your head up. Because the, brain, the vein then moves towards the, the right brain, which is the seat of memory. When you, want to, when you want to go deep into something, you close your eyes and you bend your head down. The reason you bend your head down is because then the vein turns towards your, your limbic brain, which is in the back of your head, which is the ability to focus, to concentrate. And he was all excited about it. So the, the Rebbe Shah was washing his hands. He couldn't interrupt. He, says, he told him, wait a minute. After he finished washing and he made hamoitzi, he made, hamotzi, he made the, the blessing over the bread, he went to the bookshelf, took out a book. It was written 100 years prior to that by their um, great-grandfather, the second Lubavitcher Rebbe, the son of the Tanya. And he took out and he showed him exactly this, that there's, an or, there's a vein within a person. And that explains why, you know, when you go deep into something, you bend your head down, you're trying to remember, you lift your head up. He says, wow, I didn't know that our great-grandfather, the Rebbe, was such a great medical professor. (laughs) He says, no, he was not a professor. But he saw the way it was in in the upper worlds. And therefore, he understood whatever is in the upper world also is in the lower worlds. It's physically manifest within the person. So a Rebbe, the Torah, removes the veil and is able to show us what's going on in the inside out. And therefore, when you know what's going on in the inside out, you can extrapolate what's going on in the physical world. We are physical human beings. We could only study the physical by knowing what's going on in the physical plane. We understand that everything in the physical plane is just a symptom of what's going on in the spiritual realm. So, the same thing is here. The, the Alter Rebbe discusses the infinite complexity of the universe because he's quoting the Talmud and Hagiga that we're about to learn that there are 500 degrees of separation between one heaven and the next heaven, and then there's 500 degrees separation in the first heaven and the second heaven, all the way to the seventh heaven. And then the angels, the feet of the lowest level of the angels is, is superior to all of these realms. And it's so infinitely complex, there's such infinite variety and infinite complexity. So it's today that science is revealing. We're able to see all of this in the physical realm. But... The Torah has already revealed all of this in the spiritual realm. This was written in the Talmud close to 2,000 years ago. So even though we couldn't see it with the naked eye, but, but knowing, mm-hmm. the, knowing within the Torah, you know that this reality is so Therefore, the more you're aware of the infinite complexity of the universe, and today we're more aware than ever. With each passing day, we're becoming more and more aware of the infinite complexity of the universe the more you're in awe of God. I mean, God is creating all of this and sustaining all of this.
3: I had a uh, comment, but also a question. I think the little I learned of Hebrew is a much different word when you're talking about being in awe of Hashem than being in fear. In terms of the English, it's kind of limiting because the sense of fear to me is tightness, being closed off, uh, closing my heart. Whereas, Whereas if I think about the word awe, I'm thinking differently in terms of oh, I'm in this presence of this being, and this being is with me. I'm not afraid of it. I'm in awe of it. And so I, I, I want to yoke myself to it. And, and so when, when we talk about fear, it's a limitation of the language yes. because it actually, a lot of uh, Christians, of course, one of their criticisms of Judaism is it talks about not the love of God and the fear of God. Right. Which of course I know is not true, but that's one of their main right. excuses for saying that Judaism is an antiquated or an old testimony of God, um, and and I, I just think that this concept of awe, if you can clarify it for me some more, I I really appreciate it because I have to deal with, I'm living in a culture where Jews are a minority right here, and it, it's you know I need I need help with this this awe concept is very very important, so please.
1: This is this is actually you brought a very good point. That's why when they translated the Torah, the seventy languages, they actually fasted. They turned it into a uh, fast day because it's very difficult to to translate because these concepts don't exist. You know, when they say fear, and that's not the fear we're talking about. Fear, I'm afraid God is going to hurt me. God is going to punish me. Lightning is going to strike. The eternal barbecue. but this is, not a, this is not a Jewish concept. Exactly. This is a purely, this has nothing to do with holiness. If a person is serving God because he's afraid that God is going to punish him, that's not what we're discussing here. No. That is restricting, constricting, and that's the exact opposite of holiness. Holiness is expanding, it's, 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 it opens you up. When you accept upon yourself the yoke of heaven, it's actually freeing. Because when I become a, a soldier to the king, a faithful servant to the king, I become part of royalty. You know, so some of that magic rubs off on me. I'm connected to the king. I'm his faithful servant. I'm in the palace. It it, it elevates me to the palace. It's expanding. It's freeing. A soldier doesn't feel restricted. A soldier is proud. I belong to this army. I belong to this cause. I'm part of it. I'm connected with it. I accepted upon myself the yoke. This is actually this elevates us and frees us. It doesn't constrict us, especially the higher level when you sense God's presence. When you sense that God is with you, twenty four seven that's actually very elevating and very liberating. You know, in the presence of Hashem, God is watching, He cares about me. He notices, He registers everything that I think, everything that I say, everything that I do. It's actually very free. And especially the higher levels of fear that we just discussed here, starting to discuss we actually sense God's greatness and God's presence. You know, that you, you sense the infinite complexity of the universe and how God is sustaining and creating this universe and... And, this, and every individual entity has its own individual energy, and it's all it's so tailor-made and custom-made, and it's infinite variety, infinite complexity, and God is running all of this and creating all of this. How can I not be in awe of God? So yes, that is uplifting and freeing, but it's a sense of presence. That's why awe is a much better word. It's a sense of God's presence. When you sense God's greatness and God's presence, and I'm connected to God, it, it's freeing. It's freeing. It's actually a very healthy thing you know it 's a type of fear where it's it's fear is a basic necessity a basic ingredient in a person 's life. We discussed this the other time it 's like um you know uh, a little a person has a sense of what we call stage fright or uh, butterflies in your stomach you know when you do, when you 're about to do your best and you 're out there and you get a little, you have a little sense of sense of fear. You know, Ronald Reagan, one of the best speakers, once said, he says, if I don't, when he gets up and speaks, he still has butterflies in his stomach. You know, he's an accomplished speaker, he spoke to hundreds of millions of people all the time, but he never lost those butterflies in his stomach. You know, once you start losing that sense of fear, then, then you've lost it. You know, they say the most, most dangerous pilots in the world are the worst pilot and the best pilot. The worst pilot for obvious reasons. The best pilots, because they, they become so comfortable, they lose a sense of fear. And the moment you lose that sense of fear, you're, you're lost. It's all over. A person has to always have that sense of, a sense of a little fear, a little trepidation. Not that it paralyzes you. If too much fear, then it's going to paralyze you. But a little sense of trepidation keeps you honest, keeps you grounded, keeps you honest, keeps you sharp, keeps you focused, keeps you real, keeps you human. And you like know what your skills are. Too. You know what your skills are. And, and if you, sharpen, you know, if you're
3: short on something, you get asked for help. Exactly.
1: But otherwise, you become very dangerous because you become overconfident, arrogant, and that's your downfall. Too. You
3: start to coast and
1: become blasé. And then you know you better retire, you better quit, because you better quit while you're behind, because you've reached a very dangerous time. So a person needs a little dose all the time. You need a little dose of, of fear, but that's a healthy fear. It's not a fear that paralyzes you. Someone's going to hurt me. Someone's going to strike. It's not a constricting fear. On the contrary, it's a fear that keeps you grounded, keeps you real, keeps you on edge, keeps you sharp, keeps you hungry, keeps you open. You're learning. You're open. You're 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 you know you're sharp. You're aware. Exactly. That keeps you human. So that that's a necessary ingredient in life. Like he said, it's two wings. A bird needs two wings to fly. If all you have is love, you can't fly with on love alone. You need a balance. In order to fly, you have to have two wings. You have to have a sense of awe also. Of course, the, the stronger wing is love that always has to be more dominant and stronger. But you need that dose of a sense of awe. That keeps you real. That keeps you grounded. Especially in our relationship with God. If you approach God just with a new agey approach or with love, and, but there's no sense of awe of God, no sense of God's presence, no se- then there's no sense of reality. There's nothing to check your ego then that can actually become very counterproductive and even dangerous and has nothing to do with holiness, nothing to do with God. You're on an ego trip. Spirituality could become the ultimate ego trip. So to keep you real and to keep you honest and to keep you humane and to keep you grounded, you have to approach God with a sense of, oh, you're dealing with God here. A sense of distance. Yes, God is my pal and my buddy and my best friend, but, but uh, yes, that's true, but on the <laughs> other hand, I can speak to God and I can pour my heart out to God and God is my father and I can... But on the other hand, there also has to be a healthy sense of distance. You're dealing with God. God is so infinitely transcendent. And so that keeps us real. That keeps us grounded. And from the earth to the heavens
0: is a distance of 500 years. And the distance from one heaven to the next is also a journey of 500 years. So again,
1: it doesn't mean uh, literally you're going to take a spaceship and you're going to travel 500 years, you're going to arrive in heaven. But it he means like a spiritual distance, 500 degrees of separation. Imagine 500 degrees of separation. Within ourselves, we only have five degrees of separation from one extreme to the other, from the lowest, which is the action, the tangible, to the sublime, to philosophy, imagination, meditation, spirituality. So, if that's five degrees of separation, imagine 500 degrees of separation. It's so, our whole realm, our whole frame of reference is so minute, our understanding is so limited. This realities that are so beyond us. It's such a vast, the universe is so vast, so much beyond us. The astronomers have a little sense, or have a little sense to appreciate that, how, how tiny we are, and how huge and infinitely complex the whole universe is. You know. So, but th- this is already recorded in the Talmud, close to 2,000 years ago. At the first level of heaven, is like 500 degrees of separation beyond us. And then the distance from one heaven to the next is also a journey of 500 years. And there are seven heavens. So each heaven has within itself 500 degrees and then the distance from one heaven to the next is 500 degrees. And then he continues.
0: And the feet, i.e. the lowest level of the angels, called lay out,
1: measure up to them all. That the, the, this, All the seven heavens, the chayis, which is the lowest level of the angels, their feet, their lowest level is superior to all of the heavens put together. So can you imagine... What an angel is. How vastly superior the mind of an angel is. What the mind of an angel is able to comprehend. It makes our most supercomputers look like nothing in comparison to the infinite complexity. It's different dimensions, different dimensions of reality, different understanding of reality. Our whole modern physics is child play in comparison to the level of understanding of the universe of the angels. That's why you know, we, we know in, in Jewish history there were times that uh, the Torah tells us that when Joshua sent the two spies into the land of Israel and they hid out in the home of Rahab, the prostitute. She hid them. It says she hid one of them. Joshua sent two spies, Caleb and Pinchas. And then it says she hid him In the singular. She hid Caleb. What happened to Pinchas? So Pinchas was able to mystically, Kabbalistically, miraculously, he was able to disappear. They couldn't see him. He can see them and they couldn't see them. Could you imagine a dimension of reality where he could just disappear? And Rashi the great, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, the rabbi of all the Jewish people, he lived during the times of the Crusades. And the head of the Crusades was an anti-Semite. On the way to Jerusalem, they murdered many Jews and he stopped in Rashi's synagogue in France. And he was going to harm Rashi and Rashi miraculously made himself disappear. Rashi was a great Kabbalist. And he was able to speak to him. He heard him but he couldn't see him. He says, I don't want you. I'm afraid you're going to hurt me. So he says, I'm not going to hurt you. I promise you. So when Rashi appeared and he asked him, am I going to succeed? And he says, you will not succeed. And the, the tradition has it that he told him that you will come back with only three horsemen. He was so angry, but since he gave Rashi his word, he's not going to touch him. So he says, if I come back with four horsemen, I'm going to kill you. And of course, they were routed, the Christians were routed in the crusade by the Muslims, and he did come back, and tradition has it, he came back with four horsemen. And He, was going to, he couldn't wait to come back and to take his vengeance of Rashi, but as he entered the city, a stone fell down the gate and killed one of his horsemen, and he only came in with three horsemen. So could you imagine this advanced technology, this advanced physics where you can make yourself disappear? I mean, this is so beyond us. We can't even begin to understand it. We're so, because our understanding of physics is so primitive in comparison to the angelic understanding of physics. It's a different dimension. They operate on a different level. on different, so there, But there are these dimensions. Just because we live in this tiny little world that we live in And some of us can't even imagine that there are realities that are totally beyond us. It doesn't change the reality. The reality is that there are realities that are beyond us. It's like the beautiful story with the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe. Um, He heard his children discussing once the idea of angels. And they were having great difficulty understanding the whole concept of an angel. And he says, let me tell you, there were these two professors Nobel Prize winners when a Nobel Prize meant something and they were traveling to a conference a world class conference of the greatest thinkers of the world to the, and they were having this conversation In, while they were traveling we're having the, the conversation of the cutting edge of physics of the deepest concepts the deepest understanding of reality he says so the wagon driver is traveling. The two professors are traveling, and the horses are traveling. Everyone is lost in his own thought, is occupied in his own thing. The horses are thinking about what are they thinking about? Oh, when we get to the big city, they know there's a good there's good hay waiting for them. They're going to roll in the hay, and they're going to eat hay, and they're going to have they're going to be treated royally. A beautiful barn is awaiting them. They can't wait to get to the city. What's the wagon driver thinking? Oh, we're going to get to the city. We're going to Berlin, the big city. There's nice taverns. I'm going to get drunk. I'm going to go on on the town, and I'm going to visit all the bars. You can't wait. I'll have a decent meal. And what are the two professors talking about and thinking about? When we get to Berlin, we have this conference, this international conference of the greatest minds to discuss the cutting edge of, 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 of physics. Now, the horse can't even imagine can't even conceive that there's a reality beyond his hate. That's his whole frame of reference. That's his world. The wagon driver, his world is not too, too much broader. He can't imagine a world beyond his bars and his bar hopping and, and, and running around town and becoming mindless and getting drunk. And That's his whole reality. He can't even imagine. There's a world of philosophy and there's a world of music and there's a world of cutting edge of science and philosophy and just beyond his imagination. So what do you think, the Rebbe asks his daughter, just because the horse thinks of hay, that means that the philosophers and the philosophy, that there's no philosophy? So just because a human being can't appreciate that there's a reality of an angel, a spiritual reality, a spiritual entity that's so vastly superior to our reality and lives in a different dimension, and a spiritual dimension, and, and is so much infinitely more complex and... And infinitely deeper and beyond our whole understanding of physics is a whole different level of understanding. So, just because of that, the angel doesn't exist. Just because to the horse, the philosophers don't exist, so therefore they don't exist. It's the exact opposite. The philosophers, that's the reality. It's the horse who's living within his own little, little silly reality. So too, there's so many different dimensions and deeper dimensions and deeper layers and levels of reality. When you realize how God is creating all of these worlds, these infinitely complex worlds, and all of these these infinite uh, dimensions of reality, and creating them and sustaining them and animating them, then the more you understand it, the more you appreciate it, the more you're aware of it, the more you're in awe of God. There's one God that's creating all of us and sustaining all of us and running all of us. Wow. And it's this God that I am able to worship and I'm able to serve and I'm connected with. And he, this God cares about me and cares what I think, how I think, what I speak, how I speak, how I behave, what I do. So that's, that's the awe. That's the awe that's ennobling. That's the awe that uplifts us. That's the awe that motivates us to follow in God's paths and to serve Him with all our heart and all our soul. So this is the higher level within the lower level of awe. This is the higher level within the lower level. This is the higher level. And soon we'll learn why this is called the lower level. This sounds like a very high level. No, this is still the lower level within the higher this is the higher level within the lower level. But it's not the ultimate ultimate level of awe of God. That we'll learn in a few minutes.
0: And similarly with one's contemplation on the evolvement of all the worlds, one above the other to the topmost place of the most spiritual worlds, when a person contemplates and gains a deep understanding of the divine. Nevertheless, this fear is called an external inferior fear, yura tatha, since it is derived from the worlds, that is, from understanding the greatness of God as a result of meditating upon the divine life force which animates them. For they are garments of the king, Akash Borfo, who conceals and hides and clothes himself in them in these worlds to animate them and give them existence that they may exist ex nihilo Before the worlds were created, they did not exist at all. They were in a state of non-being. Through their creation, they became beings, entities, whose existence could be experienced. This is the manner in which the divine life force animates and clothes itself in creation. That created beings should be able to perceive themselves as existing entities, which nevertheless are nullified to their divine life force. Therefore, as explained earlier, this contemplation can only result in the level of Bittal Hayesh, and not in the Gmitziyotik which is the level of Yirah Elah, the higher level of the fear of God. (laughs) It
3: is only that this fear serves as the gate and entrance to the performance of Torah and Mitzvot. For as mentioned earlier, Yirah Tata'ah leads to the performance of Torah and Mitzvot. And it is concerning this lower level of fear that our sages have said, If there is no fear, there is no wisdom. Fear of Hashem must precede the performance of Torah and Mitzvot.
1: What he's saying is that when you sense how God is the soul of the world, just like we sense our own soul, and even though we can't see our soul, but we sense our own soul, how we're more certain of of our own soul than anything in the world we can see, taste, touch, smell or experience with the five senses. So when you realize that God is the soul of the world, and the more you realize how vast, how huge the world is, and how God is the soul and the energy of this world, He creates the world, He sustains the world, then that leads to a sense you sense God's presence, a sense of awe in front of God's presence. And you you become, you want to become like the body to God. God is the soul, and you are His body. The body, a healthy body, is one that, obeys the soul and is connected to the soul. When the soul wants to move, does the hand give give the soul an argument? I don't want to move. Is the hand even religious? Well, you know, I don't want to move, but I'm going to worship my soul. I'm going to listen. You're so connected, automatically, you become one with the soul. So once you realize that God is your soul, then you want to become like God's body. And therefore, your 248 limbs become expressions of God's 248 mitzvot Your 365 veins become expressions of God 365 prohibitions in the Torah you become connected with God you sense God's presence and you become completely nullified before God just like the body is completely nullified before the soul the body doesn't even sense itself as an independent organ the body senses itself as a dependent organ It's completely dependent on the soul Without the soul, the body knows that the body is a corpse. What happens when the soul leaves the body? I mean, when the soul leaves the body, it's like a piece of clay. There's nobody home. The body is, is not alive anymore. It's a horrible thing to see, but you see there's no, there's no life. There's nothing. And the body knows it. Without the soul, the body is nothing. So the body is completely nullified before the soul. I'm not not an independent being. My whole being is... I become an expression of the soul. The soul wants me to move. I move. I have no agendas of my own. I'm completely unified with the soul. This is what he calls the lower level of all. (laughs) This is the lower level of all. sounds like a very high level. (laughs) Within the lower level, this is already the highest level. But it's still within the lower level of all because the body is an entity no one is going to say that the body is nullified before the soul doesn't exist before the soul this body is something body is a very precious entity the body is a vessel for the soul it's a container for the soul it's a vehicle for the soul it's a vessel for the soul the fact that the body could contain the soul means that the body is something in relation to the soul so much so Like we learned earlier, there is the body-mind connection. Not only the soul affects the body, that goes without saying. As the Zohar says, most of illnesses could be found in the, originate within the soul. When the soul is sad, the soul is depressed, the origin of many illnesses have a spiritual origin. When the soul is not healthy... It um, manifests itself in physical illness, so that we understand very clearly, obviously, because the soul is primary, and the soul is the en- soul is the energy, and the soul. So, if the soul is not healthy, it manifests itself in the physical. But it also ver- works the reverse: when the body is not healthy, it affects the soul. The body-mind connection works two ways, because the body is something in relation to the soul. The fact that the body could contain the soul and could yeah. express the soul and could reveal the soul so there's a certain preciousness to the body the body is, has, is an entity in relationship to the soul that the body could, could contain the soul, so it has some entity He can't say that the body is completely non-existent in comparison to the soul you can say the body is egoless, the body is connected, the body is unified the body is an awe, the body is completely, but you can't say that the body is a non-entity, it's as if it doesn't exist you can't say that
2: soul
1: continues after the body. Exactly. But
2: the soul Absolutely. continues without
1: the body. Absolutely. The soul existed before the body and continues to exist after the body. So, which, and that's why the body is a separate entity. And therefore, it's, it's an entity. You can't say the body is completely nullified before the soul. It's as if the body doesn't exist. You can't say that. There's the soul There's the body. It's two separate entities, but two separate entities that become one because the the soul, the body is so egoless. The body is so nullified to the soul. The body is so connected to the soul. It becomes unified with the soul that the body itself comes alive. It's not like a machine. The soul is not a machine, an engine that pushes the body. The body is not a car, and the soul is an engine, a motor that pushes the body. The soul, the body itself is alive. Every cell in the body is alive. You you lie a corpse, you put a human being, a live human being next to a corpse, you'll see the difference right away. This is a piece of clay, and this is a live person. The body is alive. So the body is completely unified with the soul because it's egoless. It becomes completely one with the soul, but nevertheless, it's still a separate entity. And it's a dependent entity. It's not an independent entity because the body doesn't last long without the soul. And it, it rots away, it starts rotting immediately as soon as the soul leaves. It can't last long without the soul. So it's completely dependent on the soul. It knows without the soul it's nothing, it's, 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 it's a corpse. And ultimately it will rot away and disappear. And therefore the body is completely nullified for the soul. But it, it's, it's a dependent entity, but it's an entity. And there's another analogy to explain it. When you throw a ball into the air. The ball essentially is a stationary object. The ball is not a flying object. So when you throw the ball in the air, what's pushing the ball? The
2: The energy. Yeah,
1: the energy that you're pushing. And the greater the energy, the longer the ball will fly, the greater the distance. But ultimately the energy is limited. What happens when the energy ceases? The ball reverts back to its original state. It drops down force of gravity takes over. So what does it mean when the ball is flying? Did the ball become a flying object? No. The ball essentially remains stationary. But there's an energy that's pushing it to go against its nature and to fly. So what's really flying? Is it the ball that's flying? No. It's not the ball that's flying. It's the energy that's pushing the ball. It's giving the ball its velocity. And therefore the moment the energy ceases ball reverts back to its natural state so too when you say God creates the world with his speech God's the divine energy is creating the world what happened there? God created an entity an independent entity no even when, while God is creating the world and sustaining the world what is the world really the world is, has not become an, an independent entity the world is nothing other than the God's creative energy that's, that's creating us and sustaining us. So our whole being is really the divine energy. There's nothing else. Okay, that's true. So what that means is that we are a dependent entity. We're not an independent entity. Like the light of the sun outside the sun. The light of the sun is a dependent entity. There's no independent entity. When the sun sets at night... When you don't see the sun, there's no light. Could you bottle the light and sell it? You can't, because light without removed from its source has no reality. The light is completely dependent on its source, on the sun. It has nothing other than the sun. It's a reflection of the sun. It's it's a totally dependent. entity. It cannot exist for one moment without its source. So too, when God creates the world, through his divine energy, his divine speech. He's creating an entity that's entirely dependent on God. It's like the light of the sun outside the sun. Just like the flying ball. The flying ball is totally dependent on the energy that's pushing it. Not the ball suddenly became a flying object and could fly on its own. So it's not like when a person, an artist, you you form or shape something and then you can walk away from it. Because the entity existed before the artist came along. The artist just revealed a shape, a form, one of its infinite, different possible forms and shapes. So the artist can walk away and the object will remain. But God cannot walk away from creation. Just like when you throw the ball, the energy has to constantly be within the ball. The moment the energy stops, the ball can't fly for one moment without that energy force pushing it up. And then the ball reverts back to its nature. So too, God has to constantly create the world. Every moment, God has to continuously speak and create and sustain the world because if God will cease to create the world, the world will revert back automatically to nothing. Just like when the sun disappears at night, there's no light. You can't have light without the sun. You can't have light without the source. If there's no source, there's no light. It, It can't exist for one moment without its source. It's a completely dependent entity. But nevertheless it is an entity a dependent entity because there is the sun and there is a light of the sun outside the sun and that would be the analogy of the human body the human body you can say is like the light of the sun outside the sun the body can't really exist without the soul the moment the soul leaves the body starts to decompose it's a piece of clay the body's whole life whole being is dependent on the soul and therefore it's connected to the soul. Like the light is connected to the sun. The body is totally connected to its soul. So much so, the body itself becomes alive, comes alive. Every cell of the body is alive. It's not a machine that, that moves because of an engine that moves it. The body itself becomes a part, an inseparable part of the soul. You cut your finger, you feel it. The body is not a machine. You cut a machine, you don't feel it. If you cut the sleeve, you don't feel it. Because it's not part of you. The body becomes part of you. It becomes part of your soul. That's how connected they are. That's how unified they become. If you cut your finger, your soul hurt, you feel it. You feel the pain. Someone pulls you here even. You feel the pain because it's connected. It's part of you. It's alive. So that's the meaning of life. Life is connected. But to say that the, the, that it doesn't exist at all, you can't say that. There's the light of the sun. There's the sun and then there's the light outside the sun. The light is entirely dependent on its source, entirely dependent on the sun, but you can't say it doesn't exist. That all that exists is the sun. No, there's the sun and there's the light outside the sun. There's the soul and there's the body. Yes, the body is completely nullified before the soul and unified with the soul, but you can't say that the body doesn't exist. It exists. It's an entity. It's a very precious entity. It's a vessel for the soul. It's a vehicle for the soul. But then there's the higher level of, of... of all, well, that's the highest level and that's the level where you realize that nothing exists but God that the world is not even like a body to God that God is the soul of the world not only this physical world but all the infinite realms and all the infinite worlds and all the complex worlds and infinite diversity that God is the soul to all of this The world is not even like a body to God's soul. Nothing exists but God. It's as if all that exists is God. As if God is alone. Nothing exists besides God. The world is is in a level of non-entity and non-being and non-existence. As if it doesn't exist, all there is is God. This is God's point of view. This is the ultimate point of view. The absolute point of view. From God's point of view. From the inside out. From God's perspective, all that exists is God. The world is not even like a body to the soul. This is, this is the ultimate level of awe. When you're in awe of God himself, when you see God himself, not the way God expresses himself by creating the world, sustaining the world, and revealing himself within creation by creating it and sustaining it, because that's not what God is really all about. There's a famous expression that this is not, the main event for God is not that it creates the world. It's not like God is busy creating the world and this is what occupies God and engages God. It is what engages the soul. The soul is fully occupied and engaged in creating the body. The soul can't take a hike and decide tomorrow, you know, I'm going to take a break from my body. Let me exchange one body for another body. The soul is parked in our body from the moment we're born until our last moment. It's connected to the body. It's attached to the body. This is what the soul does. The soul creates, animates, and gives life to our body. That's its job. It engages it, and it's occupied by it. But God is not occupied with creation. It doesn't engage. This is not what God is all about. Creation to God is almost an incidental event. The essence of God is so much beyond creation. So to the essence of God, the world it's as if the world doesn't exist. As if all there is is God. There is nothing else. And therefore, when you reach this level of awe, when, you, when you're in awe of God himself, not as God as creator. There's an awe, you're in awe of God as the creator of the universe. And the more you understand the infinite depth and the greatness of the universe, the more you're in awe of the greatness of God. But you're in in awe of the greatness of God as God being the creator of the world. As being the soul of the world. God in relation to the world. So you're not completely nullified. There's an entity. But then there's the ultimate level of awe. Where you're completely nullified before God. You simply cease to exist. You're in awe of the essence of God. All that exists is God himself. And that's like when you're standing in the presence. Imagine you're standing in the presence of greatness, of a great tzaddik. Imagine you're standing in the presence of the Rebbe. When you're standing in the presence of greatness, you completely lose yourself. It's like, I am nothing. In comparison to this person, it's as if I don't exist. When you're standing next to Einstein, you're like, it's as if you don't exist. You lose any sense of self. In comparison, to, it's as if I don't exist. It's like you put a candle next to the sun. The light of the candle, it's as if it doesn't exist. But it doesn't add anything to the sun. This is the ultimate level of yira, when a person completely loses any sense of self. And There was a there's a there's a beautiful story. There was these two great Hasidic rabbis, Rabbi Yisrael of Ruzhin, very famous Hasidic master. And I forget his colleague, the other one, and they were both traveling, and they were like celebrities in Europe, in Eastern Europe, and a huge crowd was there to greet them. And the ruchan, the rebbe, saw his colleague was struggling with his celebrity status. You know, it can get the ahead. It's very Mm -hmm. ego gratifying. You know, here you had a hundred thousand Jews come to greet them, and you know they were like princes, they were like kings, they were like. And he saw you he struggling very, very hard to deal with it, that you shouldn't become egotistical and you should remain humble. And he was describing to him how he deals with it. And, and you know, and the Rujan, the Rebbe, turned to him, he says, you know, I, I don't know why you're struggling so much to deal with this, that you shouldn't become egotistical, it shouldn't get to your head. He says, I deal with it in a very simple way. It's a magic imagine if you're traveling with the king and you're the minister and you're traveling with the king and you come to town and the people in the town never saw the king and they accept you they give you a tumultuous welcome you the minister you're getting a tumultuous welcome you don't know where to bury yourself the king is right here. Why are you even paying attention to me? You shouldn't even notice me. When you notice the king, you don't notice anyone else. Not, not, There's nothing else. I just notice the king. So you're noticing me. You're paying attention to me. When you're in the presence of the king, I, I wouldn't know where to bury myself. So when you sense God's presence, when you sense God's essence, the king himself, not how he's, he is in relationship to the subjects, but how God is himself is essential, is infinite greatness. And in comparison to God, nothing exists. You just just lose any sense of self. There's there's absolutely no sense of self. You become completely nullified. You realize that from God's point of view, from the inside out, nothing exists but God. And this is the ultimate level of fear. This is a level which he says, you can't even achieve it. It's, It's almost impossible for a human being to achieve it on his own. It's only when a human being achieves a lower level of fear which leads you to f- keep the Torah and keep the mitzvot. Then, that, that's what the Mishnah says, is if there's no fear, there's no wisdom. There's no Torah and mitzvot. But then, if there's no wisdom, then there's no fear because once you keep the Torah and mitzvot and you've reached a lower level of fear then God gives you the ultimate level of fear. The higher level of fear where you can become completely nullified completely nullified before God that you lose any sense of self there's absolutely no sense of self no sense of ego, no sense of self you become completely all you sense is God that there's nothing else but God so this is the ultimate level of fear, the highest level that a Jew can reach and this is beyond religion, beyond spirituality, beyond meditation. This is not just becoming aware when you meditate and you become spiritual, you become aware of God as the creator of the world, as the life force of the world, as the vitality of the world, as the energy of the world, and that makes you a very spiritual person. You sense God's presence. It ennobles you, it elevates you. But that's a, very, that's a lower level. But ultimately you reach a level where you realize God himself God in relation to himself where nothing exists. God as the creator, that's not what engages God, that's not what occupies God, that's almost incidental to God. God himself remains completely transcendent and it's as if the world doesn't exist. All that exists is God himself. And you're completely nullified. When you're standing in God's presence, you lose any sense of self. You become completely, your ego becomes completely nullified. You're not even an entity, you're not even a body to God in relation to God. All, all that you sense is God Himself. This, God doesn't demand of every Jew. This is a very high level. <laughs> Not everyone could reach that level. The lower level of fear, that's something that God demands of each and every Jew. The level of fear, that will, awe, that will lead you to do the Torah, do the mitzvah, lead a Jewish life, do the right thing, speak like a Jew, act like a Jew, think like a Jew, 24-7, that God demands of all of us all every single one of us. And that we're capable of achieving. But to achieve the higher level of awe, this is a very high level. This is only very great people, very righteous people, very great people are able to reach such a level.
3: So you were saying before about the angels being you know these five hundred levels above and above um, I have heard other Hasidic rabbis also those things that being human we have advantages over the angels and maybe it's just a PR thing but it seems to me that like the angels don't have free will and we do so we can choose to be evil we can choose to harm others we can choose to be selfish we can choose to not manifest our God given you know talents and potentials whereas an angel has no choice so can you elaborate this the question of these angels being higher than us, I, I question that from what I've learned. I, I've learned that maybe being human is higher because we have an opportunity, potentially, to bring those energies of those higher worlds to this world. So tell, can you elaborate on that?
1: Well, uh, I would suggest, if you have access to a computer, you can go to LessonsInTanya.com. And um, this is something that we learned earlier and we discussed, and it's actually recorded. Um, we discussed this in uh, in chapter twenty-seven, chapter okay. th- uh, thirty-seven, mm-hmm. and also our Kabbalah and the psychology of the souls. Um, we discussed there the uh, the advantage, the superiority of humans over mm-hmm. angels. Um, I believe it's called self-sacrifice, yes, yes. or um,
3: is that a book? Kabbalah and
1: psychology? No, no, no. It's also on, on our website. It's a cable show. Actually, every other week in Manhattan. Yeah,
3: no, I've seen it. I've seen it.
1: Yeah, so it's the it's the episode uh, called um, uh, yeah, self sacrifice. Um, I believe it's that one, and we discussed the superiority of humans over angels. Yes. There's no question about it. So,
3: that, so when you're talking about these angels being but, higher and higher, oh, it's I mean, not really... I
1: mean just, just their being. They're just spiritual beings. They're just, they're just vastly superior in their understanding. And they're, they're just the they spiritual dimension. they don't have dimension. the free will. They no, have not, to be that. They don't have the free will. We have the free will. Absolutely, absolutely. 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 No, we, we are the center of the universe. <laughs> no,
0: no. Not at all. <laughs> this class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.